This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs is in Asia this week to address the nuclear threat from North Korea. He says the military is ready to act if it needs to, though the U.S. still wants to defuse the situation through diplomacy and sanctions. The North's efforts to develop a nuclear program go back decades, of course, and so do the U.S. efforts to stop it. Under President George W. Bush, those efforts were led by Ambassador Christopher Hill. He now heads the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver and joins us from DU. Ambassador, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. We have learned recently that the interior U.S. is within striking distance of North Korean missiles. But you wrote recently, efforts to bring the Kim regime back to the negotiating table are misguided. Why? Well, let me put that in some context. Uh, The Kim uh, Jong-un administration has been very much uh, opposed to any kind of denuclearization. So they have really made abundantly clear they have no interest in going back to negotiation on the basis of uh, denuclearization, which was the whole purpose of what was called the six-party talks, that is, the effort of then-Chinese President Jiang Zemin and then-President George W. Bush to get all the actors around the same table, Russia, South Korea, Japan, China, U.S., uh, North Korea. So, um, the problem is the North Koreans, of course, would like to talk to us, but they will they want to talk to us as one nuclear power to another. So I think uh, we need to keep the door open to talks, and we should never put ourselves in the position, as they did in the, in the first term of the George W. Bush administration, of saying we won't talk to those people. We need to keep the door open because uh, we need to show the South Korean people, who after all live a lot closer to North Korea than people in think tanks in Washington, for example. So we need to show those South Koreans that, yes, we're prepared to talk, but the problem is we don't have a partner at this point. We don't have a, a North Korean partner ready to talk on the basis of denuclearization. So are you saying that the Trump administration should approach this in that nuclear power to nuclear power um, worldview, uh, or that that denuclearization in in some form has has any kind of fighting chance. Well, I think we need talks on the basis of what we talked about for years, and which North Korea accepted, which is to do away with their nuclear weapons. Now, clearly, Kim Jong Un is not ready to do that, mm-hmm. and that's why we need a much more comprehensive, in depth discussion with the Chinese on how we're going to get North Korea back to the table on the basis of something that could be workable for us that is denuclearization. If we get them back to the table on the basis of their view that, well, if the U.S. does away with some of its nuclear weapons, we'll consider restraint in some of our nuclear weapons as if they're the Soviet Union or something. This is not really a prescription for any kind of success. So I think we need to have a much more in-depth discussion with the Chinese, and I think ultimately a discussion with the Chinese on what is going to work. Certainly China has stepped up uh, their uh, support and enforcement of sanctions, but at this point one has to worry that the sanctions train 
train is moving more slowly than the nuclearization train that is the North Korean capacity to uh, build uh, deliverable uh, nuclear weapons, which I, most people don't believe that they have that capacity now, but I think everyone believes that they will have the capacity in the near future. Let me say that China has banned imports of North Korean seafood, coal, and iron starting today, I believe. And that announcement came after President Trump spoke with China's president uh, this past weekend, according to the Wall Street Journal. Um, it, it seems to me that there have been some near misses in reaching an agreement with North Korea. So the U.S. almost had a deal under President Clinton, but President Bush backed away from that, in part because North Korea wasn't being honest about how much it had already cut back its nuclear program. And you led those six-party talks in the mid-2000s and negotiated some inspections as preliminary steps. But North Korea pulled out of the deal in 2009. What has that taught you about what works and what doesn't with North Korea? Yeah. Actually, to be more accurate, we pulled out of the deal in 2008 because in in uh, moving forward to the, the key phase of implementation, yes, they agreed to shut down their nuclear reactor, which they did. Uh, they agreed to take certain steps to disable it, that is, to make it very difficult to be brought online. And in fact, they were never able to bring it online for about uh, another six or seven years. But ultimately, uh, we couldn't go forward because they would not give us any verification worthy of the name. That is, they allowed us to verify things that we are already knew, but they wouldn't let us to go and uh, go and inspect some site in the middle of nowhere uh, about which we had some suspicions because they said it wasn't on the original list. So this was not something we could continue with them. And for that reason, we had to back out of the talks. And then you correctly point out in 2009, they simply abrogated all of the uh, all of the uh, uh, what had happened in the last four years. So uh, we have a real problem getting back to talks and we have an extreme extremely big problem getting back to talks on the basis of what was already agreed, that is, on the basis of uh, their, uh, the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. So I think we need uh, some effort to make the North Koreans understand that they will have a better future if they agree to give up those weapons than not. And clearly, um, clearly Kim Jong-un is uh, by no means ready to do that. What would be the, 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 the crack that you might be able to open and step through diplomatically then? Well, I think, first of all, I think these sanctions that China has uh, begun to really implement, uh -huh. uh, you know, China has some 85, even 90 percent of North Korean trade. So if China is really serious about shutting down that trade uh, and they've shut down, as of today, some of the main elements of it, I think that will get their attention. That's the entry but point. The, but the history of getting countries to make uh, concessions on the basis of sanctions is not very good. Countries don't like to be sanctions, sanctioned, and they tend to kind of, uh, you know, kind of roll up their sleeves and tighten their belt and say, it doesn't matter, we're going to go forward anyway. I remember the Pakistan uh, uh, president back in uh, 1970s said, our people will eat grass than to uh, give in to this kind of pressure. So we also need, I think, a China that understands our needs and and 
a U.S. that understands China's needs so that we can go in and maybe take some more direct action that is short of war. I'm not recommending war because there are 20 million South Koreans within range of North Korean artillery. Mm. But we need to look for ways to slow down that program, slow down North Korea's capability of moving forward until some of these really biting uh, sanctions uh, take their effect. Am I hearing you suggest targeted military operations? No, I'm okay. not saying targeted military. I would say cyber attack, which some people would argue is military, but often the foot of the fingerprints are, are hard to discern. Hmm. I would say other efforts, uh, let me just say ever efforts aimed at slowing down their success. For example, uh, North Korea has been, uh, been able to get some equipment and some know-how from other parts of the world. That absolutely must be shut down and there needs to be a better job of it. You saw there was a major piece in the New York Times the other day about a factory in Ukraine. Well, if you consider all the things we've been trying to do for Ukraine, that factory should not be delivering missile parts to North Korea. And right. that's, in fact, what appears to have been happening. Right. The revelation was that relationship between uh, the plant in Ukraine and the North Koreans. Uh, just a bit more history to throw in here. North Korea withdrew from the Global Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty in '03. And it first announced that it would do that almost a decade before that. So we've known of the North's intentions to develop nuclear weapons for about 25 years. And it makes me wonder if if in North Korea, when you were in the six-party talks, you, you have ever had a genuine negotiating partner or if you have always had in them stalling tactics. Well, there's a, been a little of both, but I must say the context of negotiating with them during the second Bush term was that there are a lot of people within the Bush administration who uh, cer certainly contained their enthusiasm for any kind of negotiation. So, Such a diplomatic time, way to put it. Yes. So at the time when we're sitting down with the North Koreans and trying to figure out how much fuel oil we'll give them in order to shut down the reactor, now fuel oil is not something that's going to uh, uh, change the world or change the North Korean economy, but it was a, a, a payment means that we got them to do what we wanted them to do. We had people, other people in the U.S. government looking to essentially take measures that would result in North Korea wanting to step out of the talks. Now, there seems to be much more interest in getting into a negotiation. Certainly, Secretary Tillerson has expressed that interest. The neoconservatives of the uh, Bush administration, who were already beginning to be kind of orphaned during that second term, are completely orphaned now because they don't have a role in the Trump administration. So I think there's a real willingness to talk to the North Koreans. The problem is the North Koreans have backed off their effort to cooperate, and there was a level of cooperation, especially in terms of uh, bringing the inspectors in to see how they've shut down the factory, the uh, reactor, and the other facilities. Uh, so I think. We're in a uh, we're in a better place in terms of our own organization. The problem is the North Koreans uh, under Kim Jong Un have no interest, and I think it's important really to analyze why is it that they are so desperate to have these uh, nuclear weapons? They have not been cost-free. I mean, apart from the direct cost of all these purchases from odd places like Ukraine, they've also had to uh, live through a tremendous amount of isolation. Yeah, so let, let, let's talk about the, the motivations yeah. here on the Korean Peninsula for wanting yeah. to be 
uh, a nuclear North Korea, what the intentions are there. Let me say that you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Ambassador Christopher Hill, who now leads the School of International Studies at the University of Denver, and who is a part of the six-party talks to uh, denuclearize North Korea during the George W. Bush administration. And uh, you, you wrote recently about what is motivating the North to develop nuclear weapons. You said the standard reasoning is that the country has no real friends and wants to be able to defend itself from a bunch of more powerful nuclear-armed countries, the U.S. included. Uh, but you don't think that's really it. That's what, correct. Yeah, what do you think is at the heart of this? I, I think this idea they have no friends. They don't have any friends, but often people who don't have friends don't have friends for a reason. And uh, I think the North Koreans have done very little to uh, attract friends. But the notion that they just needed a couple of nuclear weapons to make them feel secure against a U.S. attack presumes that the U.S. is gearing uh, gearing up for a nuclear uh, for a uh, some kind of attack on the North Koreans. And in fact, that was the first thing we said we would not do in our six-party agreement that was reached in 2005. So I submit to you it's more than that. I think what they really have in mind is a strategy to uh, decouple the U.S. from South Korea. And here's how that would work. Uh, In the North Korean mindset, the, the South Koreans would, like North Koreans, like a Korean peninsula that's free of foreign interference. I mean, if you go back a couple of thousand years, uh, you can see that uh, Koreans have also often had foreign interference on their peninsula. And so they would all like to get the foreigners out. And so the North Koreans presume that mindset is in South Korea. And by the way, there are some South Koreans who feel that way, but certainly by no means a majority. So the, the idea is North Korea gets into a spat with the South Korean forces. And then the U.S. says, okay, we're in because it's our treaty, our our alliance responsibility to be in. And the North Koreans say to us, not so fast, because if you join in this, we will hit you with a nuclear weapon. Of course, our answer is, hey, if you hit us, we'll flatten you. And the North Koreans respond, well, game on. So There is a real problem there. And if a U.S. president, any president, says, well, you know, maybe the South Koreans can handle this themselves. And by the way, they probably can. Maybe the South Koreans can handle this themselves and we don't need to put our troops uh, into the fight there. That would be a situation where it would call into question U.S. alliance commitments, not only in the Korean Peninsula, but elsewhere in the world. So I think we need to understand that our word could very much be at stake here. And if we put our, if we are in a position where we get involved and we have to uh, uh, face the possibility of a nuclear strike against our own civilian populations, that's a tough call for any president. So I think the North Korean uh, uh, approach on this is much more consequential and much more serious than the idea of some plucky little country that, uh, alas, doesn't have any good friends and therefore needs a couple of nukes. So you think the North Korean eyes are on the, the big peninsular picture, if you will, and that this could potentially test that commitment yeah. that the U.S. has made to South Korea. Uh, yeah. what, what do you make of the president's, you, you've talked so far about others in his administration, Rex Tillerson, for instance, uh, thinking that there could be a diplomatic route here. But what do you make of the president's talk about fire and fury and, and locked and loaded? Let me say that it, it appears the North Koreans are backing off this idea of attacking Guam. So is that kind of talk working? 
Uh, I would say no. And, you know, I understand why Americans uh, value the notion that our leaders will say what they mean and mean what they say and this sort of thing. But I think overall, using terms like uh, uh, fire and fury, it looks like it was written by a North Korean. And I think it kind of reduces us to their level and more importantly gives the Chinese, who are always looking for a way out, to say, hey, you kids, including the U.S., you need to calm this all down. And so I'm not sure it's all that helpful. I think much more helpful would be the president saying, we will always stand by our South Korean and Japanese allies. We will be there for them. It's uh, We're in together. You know, uh, things like that. And also make clear that we're not going to walk away from this nuclear problem. We are going to be very much engaged with it until it's, it's uh, resolved. But to use that kind of colorful language, uh, I think kind of makes us look like a sort of uh, uh, giant North Korea. And I don't think it's helpful to our interests. And more importantly, it's really worried a lot of South Koreans who don't want to hear this kind of language from us. And I think called into question how serious we are in the rest of the world as well. Very briefly, you've, you've had the long view on this, Ambassador Hill. What's your level of fear of a nuclear attack with the North Koreans? Is it higher than it's ever been? Is it Place it into some context, just briefly. I, I am not concerned about a nuclear attack by the North Koreans. I uh, Certainly, uh, it, there's a possibility of miscalculation. I'm not uh, just uh, putting this off as some kind of farce or some kind of uh, unintended comedy. Uh, but I do believe that uh, overall, first of all, we have the world's finest military and we can protect ourselves against any North Korean threat. I'm very convinced of that. Moreover, the North Korean Koreans uh, are not as crazy as some people think they are, and I think they understand the consequence of getting into some kind of exchange with us. So I think what we get is a lot of bluster, but what I'm worried about is sometimes the bluster is taken for reality, and we could make some very bad miscalculations Mm. on the Korean Peninsula. Well, here's what former Defense Secretary and North Korea envoy... Uh, William Perry told the New York Times last week about the prospect of war right now. I'll say that he served under President Clinton. We're not dealing with al-Qaeda. They're not seeking martyrdom. So they're not, going to, they're not suicidal. They're not going to conduct a surprise attack, a preemptive attack with the nuclear weapons on Washington, on San Francisco, on Tokyo, on Seoul, because they know if they do that, they will be toast. Mm-hmm. So deterrence does work with them. You might say that... Neither side is going to deliberately start a nuclear war. But the dangerous situation today is that we have created an environment which we would drift into some kind of a conventional war, which could then escalate Mm -hmm. into a nuclear war. So the danger is that we would blunder into a nuclear war, a war which neither North Korea nor the United States wants. In a sense, we're sleepwalking into a war, and I think that's a dangerous situation. We have about 30 seconds, Ambassador. What do you think about bumbling into a war? Uh, I think the concern, as I mentioned earlier, but I have the deepest respect for Secretary Perry, I think the concern is this kind of uh, blundering into a war by making bellicose statements, feeling you have to back up the statement, that that somehow that becomes more important than doing the prudent thing, and before you know it, you're in some kind of mess. Uh, But overall, I would agree that... uh, 
we have a situation where North Korea would not want to uh, take us on. That said, if they are allowed to get away with nuclear weapons, and if they do as they do, which is to threaten everyone with a nuclear strike if that country hasn't sent them a Mother's Day greeting or something, I think it's a real problem and I think we have to be utterly vigilant and ultimately successful. That is Ambassador Christopher Hill, who now leads the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at DU, and he was lead U.S. negotiator with North Korea from 2005 to 2009 and visited Pyongyang in 2007. So all the talk lately of nuclear war, however remote the chances got us wondering about fallout shelters created during the Cold War. A thousand buildings in Denver were chosen in the 1960s to serve as shelters in the event of a nuclear conflict, says Ryan Broughton. He leads the city's Office of Emergency Management. The records that we have here at the city and county show that they were maintained fully stocked from approximately 1962 until 1973. They were stocked with medical supplies, food and water, even radiation detectors. These shelters were in both public and private buildings, and officially, these shelters have been decommissioned. But, says Broughton, If they still have a fallout shelter sign on the exterior, it does mean that it, at least as of the 70s, it was rated to provide better protection than being outside. However, It is important to note that none of those are still stocked and ready. So it's a bring-your-own emergency bag. But don't pack it just for doomsday, Broughton says. It's far more likely you'll be hit by severe weather or a prolonged power outage. Now, if you're wondering where a viable leftover shelter is, the city can't say. The sites are written down on a bunch of old yellowing note cards. I don't have a full list. I'm literally talking about an index card. So, for example, the city and county building, 1437 Bannock, 9,710 spots uh, that were stocked the uh, June of 65, last checked and verified 9-18-73. You can see these index cards and pictures of some of the buildings designated as fallout shelters at cprnews.org. He did what we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you. Yuck. And cover. Rising rents and higher property taxes are pushing people out of Denver. Folks are especially hard hit in one of the last few places you could still find a deal, the North Denver neighborhoods of Globeville, Elyria, and Swansea. A lot of people have move because the increasing of the rent and um, most everybody have uh, more than one job, you know, I do. (laughs) Maria Rivera, a single mother of two, has lived in Swansea for almost 20 years. She says she's had to work long hours to keep a roof over her family's head and pay for her kids' health insurance. But something is giving her hope. I really feel excited about Banco de Tierra. Banco de Tierra. She's referring to a community land trust. It's an idea these Denver neighborhoods want to try. The community would own the land where there are already homes to keep housing affordable. Rivera has been attending meetings about this. Every time I can assist, I'm here. I work the whole night and I'm here, okay? I do not sleep anything. But you know... When you have the necessity, you got to do it, whatever it is. Also at these meetings, 20-year Swansea resident Holiday Aguilar. 
The house she rents has been bought by CDOT. It'll be demolished to make way for the I-70 expansion. So where does that leave her? La verdad no sé. No tengo todavía... The truth? I don't know. I still don't have one place where I can say I'm going there. Because I don't know. I don't know where. Aguilar says she doesn't want to leave her community. Her kids grew up there and still work in the area. But she hasn't been able to find a place she can afford. Residents see homes getting flipped. They also worry about what a big redevelopment of the National Western Complex will mean for prices. Ray Gallegos of Globeville is a member of the coalition behind this land trust idea. Our community is so tight-knit, and for this displacement to go on, it really puts a lot of stress on not just the adults of this area, but also the children. And we do want our children to have that sense of ownership of a community, that they have a place here, and that they can grow up to build something here in these communities and own a home in the same place where their aunts or uncles or grandparents live. And so how would the land trust allow them to do that? Here to answer that question is Nola Miguel, who's working to make it a reality, and Beth Soros with Grounded Solutions Network, a national affordable housing group. She'll tell us how land trusts have played out elsewhere. And uh, welcome to both of you. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Beth, you work with neighborhoods all over the country interested in setting up these land trusts. Uh, Will you briefly break down the basics of how a community land trust works and keeps housing affordable? Sure. So there are lots of different flavors of community land trusts across the country. There's about 250 of them in 46 states and internationally. So there are lots of different types. But the Classic Community Land Trust is a nonprofit organization that acquires land and holds it permanently on behalf of the community. And the land may have homes on it as well. That's right. It could be vacant land. It could be residential with homes. It could be commercial with uh, retail stores. It could really be anything. Mm. And so what sets community land trusts apart is this idea that they're purchasing it and holding it on behalf of the community. So oftentimes we ask, what's the highest and best use of a piece of land? And we answer that economically. But community land trusts ask that same question and answer it from a community perspective. So what's going on in the community that's being unmet needs? Is it housing that needs to be affordable? Is it commercial spaces? Is it agriculture? And they try to make that happen. So from a housing perspective, the way that they do that is the community land trust holds that land and they take one-time public investments to purchase a home or to build a home and use that public investment to make it affordable to the first homeowner. And to presumably keep it that way over the long term. That's exactly right. Um, So when that homeowner purchases that home, they purchase at a below market rate price and they make a deal. They say to have this opportunity, I'm going to agree to pay it forward to the next person and sell it at a below market rate price. And that happens again and again and again. And it's not that that person wouldn't earn anything on their home. Uh, It's just that they wouldn't get the windfall that they might uh, in another neighborhood a decade later. Exactly. The whole point is to try to find that, that medium point, that balance point between building as much equity for households as we can, that's critically important, and making sure that that home is affordable for the next purchaser. So, Enola, you direct the GES Coalition Organizing for Health and Housing Justice. This is the group leading the effort. How did you decide on a community land trust as a good way to address the economic issues in Globeville, Illyria, and Swansea? Um, We've been looking at a variety of different types of solutions around um, preserving affordability in housing and think that there there are a variety of solutions that we need. 
that the, communi- this isn't the, the the magic bullet, in other words. No, but it's an important one that isn't being done. Hmm. Um, we see, you know, affordable housing developments that are happening, and we're going to have those. We have four uh, transit stations in Global Area Swansea, right on the edges of Global Area Swansea. So there will be large-scale affordable developments, you know, mixed income. Um, what's not happening is a way to preserve existing homeowners in the neighborhood um, in a little bit of a different way and in a way that uh, the community is able to own that land. For a period of how long? Would this go on a century? Is it a 99-year agreement or what? The entire point is to do it forever. Uh, legally, okay. that creates some challenges. So each homeowner will sign a 99-year lease that is both renewable and inheritable. And the idea is to go on as long as possible. It's kind of the same as a con- conservation land trust, right? It's the same idea. So the coalition needs to raise between 2 and $3 million to establish this land trust. And Nola, you're seeking money from Denver's new affordable housing fund. Uh, the city will announce how it'll distribute those funds this fall. You've also asked for money from CDOT, which has set aside $2 million to be spent on affordable housing in Elyria, Swansea, uh, with the obvious eye towards what's happening with I-70 and how it's changing the neighborhood. I'll say that both the city and CDOT have said they are open to contributing but haven't committed. And I understand you're looking at buying 10 lots to start. Doesn't seem like very much. Is is that the best use of this money? Um. We're we're still in the process of figuring out the exact amount of dollars, and this pilot or demonstration project will really help us figure out how much those actual costs are. So this is dipping your toe in the water. Exactly. You imagine this would be bigger than 10 lots at some point. Definitely. We'd, um, we're looking at more like 150. Overall in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm, over it, a five-year span. Is mm-hmm. that um, – about the size of a lot of these land trusts elsewhere in the country and the world. Sure. So depending on the size of the community and the desire of the community, they can range from 10 to 20 homes to upwards of 1,000, um, especially if we have rentals. The, that seems to be kind of the bigger mix. But I want to go back to your previous question, too. Yeah. So I think one thing that's really important to remember about community land trusts is it really takes these one-time subsidies and sinks it into the community for the community's use forever. So oftentimes when we build homeownership, or, or even rental housing. Those units are restricted for 5, 10, or 15 years, and then they go to the market. Um, so at some point, that public investment goes away. It goes to the households, and we and we lose it. It evaporates. It evaporates. So even though we're talking about big pots of money for Global Elyria Swansea, you know, it's going to be the best, most efficient use of those resources. Because you think it's long-lasting. How does rental fit into the mix? So I understand the ownership, but uh, tell me about that. Um, rental... Is a is an important component that uh, a lot of community members have been saying um, that's a big need. Um, we would like to do about half home ownership, half rental. Eventually, um, the just the need for having a, a stable rent that isn't going to be jacked up, you know, every other month, um, is extremely important right now. And with with conditions uh, in those homes that are are livable. Your organization recently did a survey to better understand the effects of gentrification in this part of North Denver, and nearly 90 percent of the people you interviewed said they're at risk of displacements. Uh, You also learned that renters are particularly vulnerable in that environment. And the, the numbers in this neighborhood are really stunning in terms of how fast uh, the cost of housing has grown. Um, average home values in Globeville have 
uh, grown from just under $50,000 in 2008 for a single-family home to nearly $250,000. In Illyria, Swansea, the average price in 2008 was around $67,000, now more than $230,000. So just a picture of what economic forces are at play there. Where has this worked really well? Uh, elsewhere in the country or the world. Yeah. So I think especially you're painting a really terrifying picture of a a neighborhood that's heating up really fast and it's going to pave the way for displacement that's already happening. So I think we see in markets like that, we see community land trusts that are really successful in Seattle and San Francisco um, and Boston, and they're getting started in New York and Cooper Square has been there for decades. Um, We're seeing them be successful in communities that have historically been affordable, like Portland, Oregon or Oakland, California. And they're really starting to take off, too. Um, What are the pitfalls? What are the risks? I think the biggest risk is the biggest challenge getting started, and that's funding, right? So we can create as as many programs as we possibly can, and they can all be wonderfully designed. But if there is no resources and political backing behind that community land trust, they're not going to be able to accomplish much. But once they're up and running... Um, are they hard to manage? I mean, when when these do well, why do they do well? Yeah. So we use the word stewardship, that that's really the key to their success. And so oftentimes, again, when we create typical affordable housing, you know, there might be a nonprofit or someone else who's standing behind that homeowner up until the point of purchase. Community land trusts, we sometimes say, are the developer that never goes away. So we stand behind those homeowners or the residents and, and the community and those homes forever to make sure that if there are challenges that are coming up, we try to address them before they become insurmountable um, and before the home is lost or the homeowner is in foreclosure. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about a method of potentially stabilizing rents and uh, even homes for sale in North Denver uh, with the idea of a community land trust. Essentially, the community would hold onto land, onto property Uh, homes with the idea of keeping those homes and potentially even those businesses affordable. And uh, we we heard in the introduction just how motivated some folks in the neighborhood are to be a part of this. Um, Will there be a long waiting list of folks who want these properties, uh, who want to have first dibs? And and how do you begin to sort that out? Um. Beth might be able to talk about different ways that that happens. I've heard of, you know, lotteries and, and things like that. I think that's something that our board will decide. Uh-huh. And what what kind of buy-in do you need from uh, members of the community itself to make this happen? And when I, when I say that, I just mean the neighbors. So not necessarily the top brass at the city, for instance, but uh, does this community trust include the folks who are living there right now? Our um, current during our current process, we're doing board development, and in a typical board of or governance of a community land trust, you have a tripartite um, structure. A tripartite structure. Yes. Okay, say that in English for me. <laughs> so there's <laughs> sort of three parts. Um, one is the uh, community members at large, so people that live in the community. Another third is the um, people that actually live on the land that's owned by the land trust, and the other third is um, you know potential stakeholders that are housing experts or government officials. So you need that buy-in from the community, even if they're not living on the land that would be a part of the trust. 
That's right. And we are working on a membership campaign um, to talk to the community at large about the Community Land Trust, um, where they could become a member of the Community Land Trust without necessarily like putting your land in the land trust, but just being a stakeholder in how how it rolls out and be, being able to, for instance, vote on that board. And would that be a financial contribution? Would there, in other words, be private dollars potentially in this? Um because the community is so low income, we're not going to ask for a ton of money, but maybe a dollar, you know, uh, what people can can afford to put in. Could that lead to mismanagement? Could things go awry uh, under that scenario? You know, I think the one of the unique things about Community Land Trust and the tripartite board that Nola just discussed is that it really is putting individual tensions up front, right? So we have the tensions of the direct beneficiaries who live on land trust land who want and need certain things, and the community may want or need different things, and the stakeholders who could be attorneys or funders may want or need different things, and that's that's intentionally up front in the governance structure so that those things come out. Um, and, and I don't think we see a lot of mismanagement. Is it possible that displacement will move faster than the idea of a land trust? That is to say, uh, people are being displaced right now. Meanwhile, you're getting your board together. Is this going to happen soon enough? The short answer is no. We're losing people every day. I mean, I worked with four families last month that, and, and we were only able to keep one of the families in the neighborhood. The other three left for Adams County. Um, I, I I mean, we have to do everything at the same time. We also need emergency funds um, to help out with immediate, you know, increases in rent, um, immediate needs that are happening. And that's um, another strategy that that we're pursuing is those emergency housing funds as well. So it's, it might be that it prevents future displacements, not current displacements. I think the hope is to get it started as quickly as possible. We know we're losing households. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. We heard from Nola Miguel, who hopes to establish a community land trust in the Denver neighborhoods of Globeville, Elyria, and Swansea. And Beth Soros, she's with Grounded Solutions Network, which works nationally on land trusts and other affordable housing solutions. This is CPR News. When you see something that's quintessentially Colorado, we're asking you to take a picture of it. It may wind up on the CPR News Instagram account. Use the hashtag ThatSoColorado. And I saw something the other day that qualified on a friend's arm. My tattoo is the Tower of Jewels from Lakeside Amusement Park in Denver. This is Kate Kirkwood, who grew up going to Lakeside, and the tower she got a tattoo of is probably the park's most recognizable feature. It's covered in lights and was one of the tallest buildings in the state when it was constructed in 1907. And it's just a part of Denver history that I love, and I I like the old Denver, and there's certainly good, cool things that are changing about the city, but there's this retro griminess that we're losing, but that remains. This got me wondering, do lots of people have Colorado-specific tattoos? And what are they of? Well, show us yours. Or maybe you're a tattoo artist who's done a lot of Colorado tattoos. If you love the state enough to have it on your body permanently, use the hashtag ThatSoColorado on Instagram. (laughs) 
Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, died 40 years ago this month, August 16th, 1977. The thousands of mourning Presley fans who had converged on Memphis came from all over the nation. Most of them were not wealthy, and so they had to drive for long hours over hundreds of miles, some in battered autos. They packed up the kids and the family dog, even left their jobs to be here. That was from CBS News. Well, today we listen back to a story about Elvis's Denver friendships. He was even made an honorary police captain here. Former Denver Deputy Chief Robert Cantwell is the author of The Elvis Presley I Knew. In 1970, Elvis played a concert at the Denver Coliseum, and Cantwell was assigned to guard the 10th floor of the Radisson Hotel where Elvis was staying. Cantwell told me he was sitting at a desk near the elevator. The elevator opened up, and three people got off of it. And one was dressed like Elvis, and the other two, uh, I think Red West and a guy named Dave Hebler, they were with him. These are his bodyguards. And they had all the appropriate ID cards on their around their necks. But the person who ended up being Elvis did not have one on him. Sometimes they test your security. And I didn't know if they were doing that at this time or not. But anyway, I asked for his security pass to be on that floor. And they read West and uh, jumped in and said, well, this is Elvis. And I said, well, you know, I don't know. I've never met him before. And there's a bunch of impersonators on the first floor. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. Well, Elvis is sort of laughing. And he said, show him my ID. <laughs> so... They pulled out the credentials to, you know, to be on the floor, which said Elvis Presley. And so with that said, we let him go on, you know, onto the floor. And that's how I first met him. I love that you were so thorough as a cop that you checked Elvis's ID. And it sounded like he was pretty nice about it, actually. Oh, he was great. I mean, his bodyguards were not very happy or pleased. But how did we know? For sure. Yeah. I'm imagining Elvis at this time in his career you know, wearing like a white jeweled jumpsuit. Is that what he wore when he wasn't on stage or did he have like street clothes? <laughs> well, I, the only time I've seen him in street clothes, as I would describe street clothes, was when we went and played racquetball and that with him later on. You know, he always had that high collar on, you know, whatever shirt he wore, whether it be white, blue or, you know, whatever. He always had a high, a high collar. At this point, he's playing a mixture of his golden hits and cover tunes. From the Beatles to the Righteous Brothers. I want to play something from that era, his 1970 tour, which he ended at the Denver Coliseum. And to put this in context, his big hit in 1969 was still pretty fresh, uh, Suspicious Minds. We can go on You saw Elvis getting ready for the show. Did he have a ritual? Well, when I saw him get ready for the show, he didn't really care to have anybody around him, you know, because he was, he told me he psyched himself up, you know, and you could see it in him. You know, he'd be moving his arms, his legs, and just psyching himself up to uh, go on when they played uh, the entrance song. Yeah. So you eventually did get to go to the Coliseum and see him. Yes. He asked us if we were going to the concert, and I said, no, we're not going to be able to go. We're signed here to keep people off the desk. He said, well, I want you to go. And I said, no. I said, this is our job, and we're going to make sure it's safe for you when you get back. Well, it wasn't 10 minutes later that 
Jerry Kennedy came over to us and uh, said, well, I guess you're going to the concert. I said, we are? He said, yeah, Elvis wants you to go with him, and we're going to move two other officers up here to the desk. Jerry Kennedy, your boss at the Denver Police Department. Uh, Eventually, you became friends with Elvis. How did the friendship develop? You know, how you make friends, I I don't know the answer to that. You know, there's just an attraction sometimes that brings two people together. And and Elvis... um, what he saw in me, I'm not sure. Nobody else was ever sure either, <laughs> except we had some general background, uh, family backgrounds that he liked to talk to me about. Hmm. What was that? Well, you know, he came from a very poor family, and uh, his dad was incarcerated like mine was, and they moved a lot like we did. So, you know, we had a lot of similarities in uh, our backgrounds that, and he loved his mother. I mean, he really loved his mother. Well, and so he liked to talk to me about his mother and that, and I like to talk to him about my mother, you know. I guess this friendship you developed leads to photos of Elvis in a police uniform. He was made an honorary captain in Denver. I have to say, it's a little surreal to see Elvis in a Denver police uniform smiling widely. How did those images come about? Well, the next day... Uh, after the concert, he wasn't in a hurry to leave, and he he told us, hey, call your buddies if they want to come over and get photographs or whatever. Then he had his guns. He wanted to show everybody his guns, and we took him over to uh, meet the chief. And with that, I mean, he he bought his own uniform. We didn't buy him one. He bought his own. He went down and bought one where we all got our uniforms. When the chief gave him his badge, you know, then he put it on the uniform. I mean, he was he a police officer at heart? <laughs> yes, he was. He talked to me a lot about that, that he always thought he would be, become a police officer, but God, these are his words, God blessed him with a voice. Hmm. In 1971, a Denver patrolman, this is Officer Merle Nading, was mm-hmm. killed by a gunman on Colfax Avenue. And Elvis heard about this killing and, and responded. He did. He even donated the the money so they could finish the gym in his name, which he had started at District 2 gym. And so Elvis donated, I think it was like $5,000. Bob, there are a few stories of Elvis buying cars for people. Were you ever one of them? (laughs) Yes, I was. What did he buy you? It was a 76 Cadillac Seville. Wow. What was your reaction when he did that? Well, my reaction was I didn't want it. What? You know, I, I just didn't, a couple of reasons, but one, I, as I say in the book, you know, I, what was he going to ask in return? And that was a big concern of mine. And so until we got that straightened out, then I was happy. You're such a straight-laced cop, because you're, you're thinking, you know, I don't want this to look like bribery, is essentially what you're saying. Well, not about bribery, but I mean, more of, uh, he, he could ask, uh, oh, for example, uh, we're going to go skiing or, or on the snowmobiles up here, would you get a hold of the the cops up here in, in Vail and, and make sure they don't bother or something like that. But it was clear to you eventually that he did not want anything back, I suppose, and that's when you accepted the car? It was very clear, you know, that uh, he was very upset with me for questioning why he would give me a Cadillac, because what could I give him in return? He was very upset with it. But he wanted me to know that He gave it to me because I was his friend. Elvis died August 16th, 1977. Uh, How did you hear the news, and and, and what was your reaction? 
Well, I heard the news from uh, Jerry Kennedy. He got a call, I believe it was from uh, Elvis's dad, Vernon. Kennedy was your boss at the Denver Police Department. Yes, and we flew right out, you know, to be at the Graceland. And while we were there, you know, we uh, we stayed around Elvis. We weren't working. They asked us uh, very kindly if we would stay by Elvis's casket, which was in a in the room that Elvis used to have his piano in when we were there many other times. But and I think they, at that time they wanted to make sure that someone didn't say like they did say afterwards that uh, he's still alive. Huh. And so, but I can attest that he's he's deceased because I had to touch him. I mean, I know somebody's going to say something, and I'm going to say, yeah, I touched him. I know he was cold. That is Robert Cantwell, formerly of the Denver Police Department and author of The Elvis Presley I Knew. We spoke last year. Elvis died 40 years ago this week. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.